operation together was one of these joint task investigations about mafia takeover of gay bars, recruitment of young boys into homosexual prostitution, drug trafficking, and a set of murders of homosexual men. Now, interestingly enough, this um, investigation was shut down and very similar to uh, Mike Codella being shut down, right? Extremely similar to that. Basically, I think once people realize that these investigations can lead to very high elite people, they obviously, they get shut down. And so we're still living with the legacy of that today because, of course, if the people back in the old days could have realized that the people running us are essentially pedophilic drug dealers, I mean, to, to break it down into the most basic of terms, we're ruled by pedophile drug dealers. If people 50 years ago could have realized that and maybe did something about it back then, maybe we wouldn't li- be living under the tyranny that we are today. So, of course, one of the things that I hope to do is to expose these scumbags even more, and hopefully it will lead to maybe not a... a I can't, I can't um, be delusional and think that all of a sudden everything is going to get better in the world, but maybe a few people will wake up. Hello and welcome back. This is Melody and this is episode 42, Waking Up With Mel. Today we are going to wake up to the case of Etan Paz, and I might be saying his name wrong, but he is one of the first little missing boys that went public in the 1970s. He's not the first missing child, but kind of the first one that links to possible undertones that are dark and kind of changed the whole world. Um in New York. So let's let's talk about Eton. What really really interests me about this case is as far as I can remember, I have been somebody that's really good with faces and horrible with names. And you know, I could see somebody years later and be like, "I know that person." And so when I started watching that TV show Dexter when it first came out. Now, if you've never seen Dexter, It's on HBO, I believe. I don't recommend it. I watched it before I was saved. (laughs) And it's dark. And it's about this kid who was trafficked, saved by a police officer. The officer raised him as his own child. The kid wanted to hurt things. So the officer taught him how to channel that in ways to help. It's just, it's dark. And this guy ends up growing up working in a detective uh, field and he basically takes revenge on evil people that do evil things to kids, which I like that part. So like the justice system doesn't do justice and Dexter, the character, the main character of this Dexter HBO show um, will then go stalk this person down, take him to a clean room and wipe them out. And throw and then take his boat out into the Florida because that's where he lives, I believe it was Florida. Um, and I could be wrong there, but anyways, he takes him all the body parts out on a boat and he throws them out. And that's this TV show. And every episode, it's a new episode of the of something. And um, one day when I started researching different, well, it started with the Johnny Gosh case. Johnny Gosh was the first missing child in Iowa to be put on a milk carton. A lot of people think it was Ethan, but it wasn't. Ethan was part of that that um, whole campaign, but he wasn't the first kid. It was actually an Iowa farm place that decided to um, start this missing children's campaign. And 
it was because of Johnny Gosh and this other newspaper boy who went missing in Iowa. Very similar to what we're about to talk about with Eton. And as I started researching this case, it's, of course, just like the Charlie Manson case, has these roots and ties that go so deep, I can't even begin to explain it all on one podcast, nor will I try, but I am going to try my best to make this make sense. So anyways, I see this Etan kid and I'm like, holy crap, that's Dexter. Like that's Michael Hall. That's, that's the same dude. And you know, I can never prove it. I'm not, how am I supposed to prove it? So we'll call that a conspiracy, but look at them, look them up. I actually have a side-by-side -side of them on my TikTok. I did a thing on it. And it's just so interesting how, in my opinion, okay, and let's back up to Johnny Gosh. I have a podcast that, that briefly talks about him, and I believe I played a clip of this guy who was at the George Bush Jr.'s press conference, and he kept asking questions. And it drew media attention to him. And the media started saying, oh, look, that's Johnny Gosh. And then some other guy did an interview saying, you're not Johnny Gosh. Blah, 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 blah. I know you're not like trying to just debunk this whole thing. So some people think Johnny Gosh is still alive, you know, had to be a male prostitute, all the things. Um, and after knowing how deep and dark this world gets, it's, it will not surprise me if the case with Eton was set up. So before we travel down the dark roots of this case and the paths that it leads, let's talk about the boy himself. He's so cute. He looks exactly like Michael Hall um, as a young kid. There's only one picture I can find of Michael Hall, by the way, and it totally looks Photoshopped, but maybe it's not. But yeah, out of all the photos, there's only one of Michael Hall as a kid. Weird. And they also, I have to mention this, they have different birthdays because I always compare. But if you've ever done any research into this Alex Jones character, some people say he was Billy Hicks, a comedian, and then like killed himself and came back as Alex Jones. They they call it suicided themselves when they this comedian Billy Hicks was killed or suicided. And then out pops this Alex Jones guy who looks just like the Billy Hicks character. But Alex Jones is supposedly like in his middle 40s or something, and there's just no way. He's way older than he tries to pull himself off to be. So I always laugh at that whole Alex Jones thing. Um, and that's why I think the world is such a stage. You know, I they, they like to show us in Hollywood, the Truman Show. I think so much of the world is a stage. Because if you really think about this with a critical mind, like half a million children in just the U.S. go missing every year, which is just insane. Most of them out of California. Like most states have way single-digit numbers, you know, hundred, few hundred. California has 2,000. They have like the most missing children. And so weird how many kids go missing out of California each and every single year. So you have all these kids missing every single year. But why do they highlight the one? And then not only that, they name all these national holidays and start these fundraising campaigns and all these money so they can funnel money through these organizations and traffic more children. Because honestly, people's kids didn't go really missing off the street that much. And then they put this fear 
into us that it was happening. And then people, it changed the way we lived, y'all. It really, really did. And when you start to go back and look, it is so organized. It started with this Ethan kid, then Adam Walsh, and then they have the Johnny Gosh. And it's almost like, to me, when I started researching this, I'm like, wow, well, they had this New York case and it spread through New York, but then they had to push it to the other quadrants of the of the U.S., right? So then they had to go to Iowa, Florida, make sure we had all the sections of the United States scared of the same thing. It's really, I mean, I'm telling you, this case gets deep. It gets into Nobel Peace Prize dudes living nearby who is a convicted pedo. There's so much. Um and I feel like I'll get a little too jumbled if I just don't chill out. And let's first talk about who Ethan was. All right. So Ethan Kalai Paz, P-A-T-Z. He was born October 9th, 1972. He disappeared May 25th, 1979. He was an American boy who was six years old on May 25th, 1979, when he disappeared on his way to a school bus. surveillance video you may have social media so if this case was going to get solved you guys had to solve it you had to walk you had to talk to people we had to look at everything over again take a fresh look and we just kept pressing forward we just kept looking at everything over and over and over again every missing child case is very important but this was one of the oldest ones we had it was 30 something years worth of investigative steps six-year-old boy you know six i think it was one of the most significant unsolved cases in the history of new york city when Aton was lost in 1979 i think the city was in more of an innocent state of mind I mean, this is the first day he walked to the school bus. You could stand at that door and you could see the school bus stop. It's like right there. We have always felt that he's alive. We have always kept up our hope that we would get him back. We can't determine when it's going to end or if it's going to end. And we will keep hope and we will keep looking. That photo will always haunt me. And every single day that I sent my son out to school, I thought of Aton Pates. And I was one of 8 million New Yorkers like that. This is Washington Square Park, and this is significant because Jose Ramos, who was the main suspect in the case, said he met a boy over there by the fountain, molested the kid, and then said he let him go. They're trying to hook me up with paints at the bull When you looked at the evidence concretely about Jose Ramos, it was it was lacking. Look at this. See this here? Back in 2010, Lieutenant Zimmerman had approached me and he said, hey, you mind taking another look at this case? Cadaver dog, cadaver dog. Indicated the presence of human remains. Human remains. Search here. The case was always open, always looking for the needle on the haystack. 
We have a suspect a dead in custody that who forced the truth out of hiding. The disappearance of Aton Pates. The call comes into our office, onto the phone right next to my desk. Did you ever heard the name Pedro Hernandez before? I grabbed him by the neck, mm -hmm. and I started to choke him. Do you recognize this person? Yeah, that's him. Facts of that confession make no sense. He's unreliable because of his psychiatric condition. You thought you were looking at the man who killed Aton Pates? Yes. That's a 48 hours episode and it's titled The Lost Boy. So I thought when I found that, because there's not much you can find about this kid, which is interesting as far as, you know, past goes, interviews with his sisters, parents don't really talk much. They have really no emotion when they do. And I try so hard not to judge or like convict somebody, you know, in my own mind. But there's just certain red flags with this family that just are bizarre to me. Uh, the first one is the dad is a commercial photographer. The second one is they were involved with this artist uh, movement down there in Soho. And it was like this collaborative artist space where they all watched each other's kids in this like dungeness looking basement. It's just creepy. The daughter. Uh, oh, in this picture with these kids, by the way, that they were all watching together. Um, supposedly, Eton was a part of this daycare um they show a picture and they're all standing there and the kids look sad and there's really weird artwork behind them and then there's this table in front of them and on the table is one bowl that's empty and then it looks like all their servings like all the kids servings so like five different servings on the table are just thrown on the table there's no silverware no napkins no chairs like it looks basically like the they expected these kids to go eat like dogs, like with their hair. I don't know. Maybe that's the way people did it in 1970, but it just is weird to me. And then the fact that this bus stop, as you just heard, was an eye shot from these parents' house. And then as I started reading different articles and listening to different interviews, these parents tell different stories. So instead of me telling you the different stories, let's hear it for ourselves. Aton Pates was just six years old, and like many kids that age, he wanted some independence. It was 1979, the last day of school before the Memorial Day weekend, and Aton's mother, Julie, finally agreed to let Aton walk alone to the school bus stop. It was just two blocks away from their Manhattan apartment. Um, my feelings that morning were very positive about his going. Aton was carrying a book bag and a dollar to buy a soda at the corner store near the bus stop. And then he seemed to vanish. Julie and her husband Stan didn't realize their son was missing until that afternoon when he didn't come home from school. Julie called the school and learned Aton never arrived and his friends never saw him at the bus stop. So she called the police. 
I didn't want to start with something bad happened to him. I would rather start in my mind, in my heart, that it was just a missing person. Former NYPD detective Patrick Ianello immediately headed to the Pates' home. And then we started to uh, knock on doors. Anyone see this boy? We worked all that day, we worked all that night, and then the following day I got home. And uh, I, I was ready to break down myself. Because? Because I, I saw my son. And he was Eitan's age. Mm -hmm. A command center was set up right in the Pates' apartment. Both my wife and I are, are continue to be confident that he is alive and uh, we hope he's being cared for by someone who uh, might want a child as adorable as he. The police did not know us. We had to be cleared of suspicion as well as many other people. Aton's image was splashed on storefronts and in newspapers. Aton's father is a professional photographer and took many photos of his son. These pictures captured the public's heart and captured Aton's spirit. He's just bubbling over with life, and he always saw the positive side where other people saw negative. It's just, he's just an incredible person. Our six-year-old boy is a loving, trusting child. We think an adult could have convinced him to come with him. The police canvassed the neighborhood, talking to people on the street, interviewing workers at a corner store near the school bus stop. Hi, Warren. Hi. Have you heard anything? Anything suggesting? No. Anybody talking? Anybody Not saying open. anything? Huh? Nothing Okay, thanks a lot. Keep your ears open. The longer we've gone without any bad news, I think that's good. Detective Bill Butler was Ianello's partner. Uh, he was last seen at uh, 7.55 a.m. We have leads. We don't know where we're going to end up on the leads that we have now. Well, they pronounce it eight times. And when you go this long or something like this, you do, you, you feel like you're looking for your own son. The search for Aton dragged on. Detective Butler, a father with six children, lived and breathed the case. How did this case influence Bill Butler? More than I could imagine. He was very, very tied into the case. In 1986, Bill Butler took his own life. And there was speculation his frustration with this case may have been part of the reason why. Sergeant William Butler, I believed, really wanted to figure this case out and found out more than he should have. The police sergeant, this is an article from the New York Times in 1986, right after he supposedly killed himself. And it said that he was found lying on the floor about 2.15 p.m. by his daughter, Jacqueline, a police officer assigned to the 17th, 70th Precinct in Brooklyn. He had a gunshot wound to the head and his off-duty 38 caliber pistol was under his body. Okay. Oh, gosh. I'm sorry, Mr. Butler. 
Sergeant Butler, who was assigned to the 13th Precinct in Manhattan, had previously been the detective and had investigated the case of Eton Paz, the schoolboy who disappeared near his home in Soho in 1979 and has never been found. Um, a police spokeswoman, Sergeant Peter Swinney, said that Sergeant Butler had some quote-unquote personal problems but would not elaborate. He said the sergeant who was married had six children, four of them police officers, and he did not leave a suicide note, probably because he didn't kill himself, just like Jeffrey Epstein. So then I found this other article, and this one's dated um, February 25th, 2015, and it's from the Courier Post, South Jersey. It says, Missing Boy, Missing Files, Problem Paper Trail in 1979 Case. And then it says, New York trying a man for murder in the 1979 disappearance of a six-year-old Ethan Paz has, Eton Paz has come to obstacles, creating the passage of time. Many witnesses, including the lead detective, have died. Memories of those still alive had faded. They're covering this case up for some weird reason. And the piles of investigative records from the case, including untold missing documents, some of them in three boxes discovered in a police storage room in just the past few days, even as the trial is well underway. <sighs> this is crazy, guys. So they're trying this guy. They find a box of stuff. This article comes out before he's even put in prison for 25 years saying that the real problem is no one really knows what's going on with this case but yet here we are 2023 and pretending that this case is solved but it's not at all and now I want to play you a clip from a podcast that just blew my mind because it ties Eton Paz's case into the son of Sam and this Nobel Peace Prize dude, I mean, it just like makes, this is where the tree roots grow big. All right. So get your coffee, get your popcorn, and say your prayers that all these people get caught. I'll be totally thorough with you guys out there. So just so we see what this is, this is a Yonkers Police Department Special Investigations Division, okay, document talking about the uh, an interview uh, talking about Gajusek and Eton Pates. Now, this was written by Detective Kevin Murphy. To those people who are Son of Sam heads, okay, people who've watched, who've read The Ultimate Evil, who've watched J Josh Zeman's Netflix documentary, Kevin Murphy's a famous guy. He was a Yonkers detective who worked very closely for many years with Maury Terry on the Son of Sam case. He worked with Detective James Rothstein. In fact, Kevin Murphy's still alive. We are trying very hard to get this guy to speak to us. Mm. But, for, but for some reason, he only emerged for uh, Zeman's documentary and then went back underground. And we can't, we can't seem to find him, even though, you know, we know he's in Yonkers. Uh, we, we know that presumably he's interested in finding out answers to this case and, and, and helping it get solved. Hey, but Carl, yet, if you're watching, can you help us out? Yeah, maybe maybe they can. Um, we're trying to get Detective Rothstein to call him. I mean, we're we're trying a lot behind the scenes, but Kevin Murphy seems to be a very elusive character. In either case, this first um, this first uh, page is really has very little to do with what we're talking about. So, but I just wanted to establish 1996. You see the date up there, 1996. We see Yonkers Police Department. This is an official document from Yonkers Police Department. If you wouldn't mind, Eric, please go to page two, because this is where it starts to get very interesting. All right, page two. So I'm just going to read this for you guys. 
the pertinent sections and, and try to and try to explain it as I go. So on March 3rd, okay, 1998, <clears throat> I spoke to a, the attorney for Dr. Daniel Carlton Godjusek. The attorney's name was Mark Hulkauer. 1330 Connecticut Avenue. Now, this guy, Mark Hulkauer, we've done some research on him. He's an extreme deep state lawyer. This guy protects every deep state criminal that there is. Major, major lawyer down in Washington, D.C. All right. After conferring with Godjusek, Mr. Hulkauer stated he would need a full, full immunity from prosecution prior to any interview. That's pretty... Um, uh, uh, you know, like when I, if I, I don't need full immunity, right? Uh, I, I hadn't done anything, so I don't need full immunity. Like anyway, he needed full immunity. So the rest is, you know, the following information on Dr. Gajusek is known by a biography. And what I'll do is I'll put this on my Twitter for you guys to, to, to download and read. I'm all about giving you guys as much information as possible. So this stuff here is just his bio arrested, but here, arrested on April 4th, 1996 by the Frederick County, Maryland Sheriff's Office for two counts of child abuse, two counts of perverted practice. I think, Eric, this is the time to show that video clip of this, of this guy, just showing who we are dealing with here. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> be ready, everybody. And this is graphic. I've never once taken a kid to my bed. They have come to my bed, and I am no one to kick them out. If they hug me and I find them playing with my cock, I say, good on you, I play with theirs. And I will do it now and with great pleasure. When you grow up with a culture that does not condone this, that totally no breaks culture it, condones it, surely it, it must hurt you when you get subjected to a grown-up uh, forcing sexuality on you. Boy, what a brainwashed person with three or four hundred boys who had sex with me from eight and ten and twelve. One hundred percent have run into my bed, jumped in without my mentioning it, and asked for sex. I have never asked for it. I've never. And most of my friends, don't you realize that I was jumping in people's beds hoping they would take me? All boys want a lover. My God. And every the, the idea that these men go after you don't have any point in the world. Now, come on. That's the rule of the game. That's some of the most disturbing footage I've ever, ever seen. And right. Even and this is the hundreds. Yeah. Like, I mean, this uh, is the sociopathic person who is uh, being revered by the Nobel Committee and giving peace and given peace prizes for for work in medicine. So you can clearly see there's a sociopathic mindset. There's a there's a mindset, a psychopathic mindset. There's a mindset of he's can do no wrong and that the whole world is against him. And that whatever he does is okay just because he deems it okay. All right, keep that in mind when we read the rest of this passage. And I will let him read the rest of that passage to you all real quick. But I want to pause right there because another red flag went off in my soul when he mentioned he was a Nobel Peace Prize. So I had to go back. I had to research this dude. He is the biggest piece of garbage. Um, his name is Carl, C-A-R-L. G-A-J-D-U-S-E-K. He was a Boy Scout. He was a Nobel Peace Prize winner. He had ties to the NIH, um, Fauci. Um, he has ties to this pimp dude named Ace Brown, um, who I think, anyways, we'll, we'll go there a different day. I could get so lost on this stuff. Um, he, it's, he's connected to the neighborhood where Ethan went missing. Um, 
I will play more of, from this biker guy who protected him. He's a Satanist. I mean, it goes on and on, this dude. And so he's a Nobel Peace Prize winner, okay? Do you think it's weird if you ever look at the Nobel Peace Prize, like when um, Obama was giving him to Ellen DeGeneres, degenerate, who we all know is an good person. If you don't, then I'm sorry. Um, did you know Ellen DeGeneres' stage is the same as Epstein Island's house or whatever on that island? these people, their symbols will be their downfall. They love to show it to us, but we are also ignorant. And now they can't handle the fact that we're waking up the, it's just crazy. It's crazy. Um, so anyways, this guy is not a good dude and he has a Nobel peace prize. And then we, then I started me thinking about Obama giving all these Nobel peace prizes. And I've never really even cared about a Nobel peace prize, but it made me remember Trump always saying, I deserve a Nobel peace prize for not having a war the whole time I was a president or for doing all this good stuff or that good stuff. Cause he did all kinds of good stuff. And he'd always say Nobel peace prize and stuff. Well, I think because Trump loves to put the people he wants us to look at right in front of us. I think he said that for a reason more than we realize. We need to look at every single person who has ever got one of these in the history and they're likely a pedo. And then I started thinking about the the word peace, right? The peace sign. If you've never heard this before, believe it or not, I don't care. But they take a cross and these satanic symbols and they break it. There's two sides of it and they throw it down and um, say what they don't believe in. I won't even, I don't even want to say that out loud, but they say they don't believe in the savior and throw the cross down. And so the peace sign is the upside down cross broken and it's, then they, they have people wearing it, you know, like a peace sign, but really they're denouncing Jesus. Um, so not only is it called a noble, like, so noble peace prize so to me it's like a pedo satanic prize that they're giving to each other but they're the guise of it for us idiots the public is noble peace prize when really it's a satanic pedo prize that they're giving to each other just a thought there okay let's continue on sentence in the frederick county jail he is scheduled to be released in april and may so he was actually ended up getting busted one of the kids that he molested went to the police in 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 the 90s and he got busted and he ended up in jail in maryland okay now we're nowhere near long enough nowhere near long enough absolutely because back then i don't think anybody had an inkling even though he was giving interviews on the bbc right talking about 300 kids um and being indulged I'm sorry. That, yeah, and even I don't know the, what's more disturbing, him or the guy saying, "Well, doesn't that make you feel bad?" I was. That's what I was just gonna say, Eric. Wasn't that disturbing to hear the guy say, "Oh, all these adult concepts, right? Like, like it's an it's just a weird adult concept that having sex with a child is bad." I mean that that's a that's a crazy mindset that you just saw there in one minute. And I'm glad that you appreciated, um, you know, the gravity of that. So Dr. Gajusek, back to the letter, has a medical degree from Harvard Medical School. He won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1976 for discoveries involving degenerative brain disease, such as the mad cow disease. For the last several years, he has worked for the National Institute of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, as the chief in the laboratory for central nervous system studies. He spent many years in Micronesia studying the people and their, and their, their medical conditions. Here's where it starts to get serious. While in Micronesia, he wrote in his NIH journals of his sexual experiences with young males and the lack of inhibitions of the Micronesia people to accept consensual sex between children and adults. 
Gajusek adopted and brought to the United States 37 boys and one girl. Mike Codella, by the way, told us it was actually a lot higher than, than that. Um, one of the adopted boys pressed the aforementioned charges. Let's go to the next page, please. Let me just get there with you. And by the way, I'm going to pause because, you know, just reading takes out of it. Yeah, of course. Of course. We're talking about the NIH, and I can't immediately accuse things, but it is curious, if you will, that um, he worked in the same institution with the same person who funded both gain-of-function research and other research that involved unspeakable cruelty with with uh, the beagles. beagles, right? Exactly. And I, I, I mean, and this guy ran a lab, and that funding was done in a lab. I mean, I'm, hmm. and then there's other things that you know. Again, I can't relate them. I can't say that they're connected at all. Right. Um, but you know that um, Bill Gates had a relationship with uh, Jeffrey Epstein. Epstein. Yeah, of Do course. You know why he had a relationship with Jeffrey Epstein? Uh, no, I think he just wanted money, or or he wanted. Uh, oh, I think he wanted a Nobel Prize, right? <laughs> so Epstein so, was a kingmaker. He could get people Nobel prizes. Oh, and he might know, shall we say, people uh, around the Nobel world who had peccadillos and right. could be potentially blackmailed. I don't know for sure. Again, allegedly, speculative. Well, we're going to get odd. And let me tell you something. There's a passage in here where, where it talks about um, a lot of these sick uh, elites and what they do with kids. We're going to get to that in a second. But, yeah, we're trying to, right now to speak to um, Judy Mikovits, who worked with Fauci and all those guys uh, and who knew all them, uh, to find out the links between Fauci and Gajusek. But, it, but I think that there's a rich vein of research to be done right here in this NIH and the, and the personalities involved because we're seeing, yeah, these, these are some sick psychopathic people and they need to be torn down because they're destroying our world. All right, back to page three. Regarding this in, 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 informate investigation, and this is where it starts to get very interesting uh, and, and tying all this together. David Berkowitz, the infamous son of Sam, for those of guys who don't know, in 1996 spoke to a Yonkers Police Department confidential informant about a Yonkers cult member involved with the disappearance of children and possible homicides. Berkowitz said that the cult member had a house on Palmer Road, Yonkers, near the Sawmill River Parkway. Now, that's just where Gajusek lived. He lived right off the Sawmill River Parkway on Palmer Road. I just did a recent video on my site where I showed you his house, and we talked about this uh, on a walk and talk. Okay, the CI, confidential informant, related that Berkowitz was at the house several times for parties and meetings during 1976 and 77. Berkowitz indicated that he was a prominent doctor who was gay. At the time, I checked the Palmer Road for possible subjects, but discounted Gajusek. But on April 4th, Gajusek was arrested in Frederick, Maryland. In a subsequent meeting with David Berkowitz, he stated to me that Gajusek was a member of the Yonkers Son of Sam cult. Although not at any of the homicides, meaning the Son of Sam homicides, he stated that Gajusek would have known about the plans, but definitely about the children. Now, that's a weirdly written sentence. I'm not quite sure what that means exactly. In late of, 19, of 1996, I went to the Frederick County, Maryland Sheriff's Office and spoke to Detective Redacted. 
uh, he briefed me on the investigation, and I was able to view the NIH journals of Dr. Gajusek. From a source that came forward after the arrest of Gajusek, a Lim Chong Keat from Singapore. Let's, hold on. Why in the hell would that be redacted? He was convicted. The lead detective would be on in court records as part of the con- conviction. So I, I, I don't You're know right. why you would why, why would you block that out? He just said he was the primary detective. He would be named as the primary detective in the filing. That's think. a good. That's a good point. Which you know, I, I I don't know much about that kind of stuff. But someone, if you look at this redactions, often you can zoom in and see underneath this. They went, but on this one you can't. They went through serious, serious effort to really redact this. But check this out. This gets back to what you were talking about before, Eric. After the arrest of Gajusek, a Lim Chong Keat from Singapore was identified as a friend of Gajusek and as a pedophile. Keat told the source that he was associated with wealthy intellectuals that traded young children amongst themselves. And then redacted was also a member. So... This Lim Chong Keat, by the way, is an extremely famous architect. He's still alive. Uh, there's a picture of him in here. Um, if you just go to uh, Lim, L-I-M, you can oh, see, see a picture <laughs> of this guy. And again, children, there he is, Lim, right, right there. If you ever see a guy that looks like this coming at you, children, run the other way. Hold on one second, Eric. I really apologize. Let me just turn my ringer off. so here's a guy who's a famous architect this guy's massively well known in fact i'm 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 very ashamed to say as a botanist and as a horticulturist he's a very famous botanist as well uh, with several plants named after him now it's funny because i always used to tell my classes at new york botanical garden of course before i got fired from there for for being a conservative uh i said that the horticulture world was run by the eyes wide shut crowd and um, people actually would complain to the management about that, that I would say that. Um, but I knew something that they didn't, right? Here we go. All right. So now we're starting to get serious. Let's go back to this letter, Eric, because it's getting serious. As if it wasn't. As if it wasn't. But it here's, was where, <laughs> here's where we're starting to tie it all in. Gajusek, the doctor in question, was identified by David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, as a close associate of Walter Ace Brown, the pimp involved with child trafficking from from, uh, Detective Rothstein's files and book, okay? A convicted pimp of young males. Brown, who stated in 1972 to NYPD Detective James Rothstein that people in Yonkers were killing kids and burying them in a park. Brown took Rothstein to a Yonkers park, but he was unable to locate any graves. Rothstein reportedly informed this to a detective, and no report was located to verify his account. Brown has indicated to me, meaning Brown told Kevin Murphy, okay, because Kevin Murphy interviewed Brown, uh, knowledge of the cult in Untermeyer Park, but denies knowing any more. Now, here's the second witness, independent, okay? So you have David Berkowitz already talking to a confidential informant that Gajusek was a member of the Yonkers cult, and was, was around for homicides and knew about homicides of children. Okay, here's where it starts to get much more serious than this. Okay, John Lentini, currently in Greenhaven Correctional Facility. Now, we need to back up a second and talk about John Lentini. Who was John Lentini? Let's, let's show him there. Now, in this picture, he goes by a name, Daishin John Wolfhawk, okay? 
he that was a name that he made up for himself. This is this is John Tiny Lentini, okay? And what he was was a very very violent um prolific he's good. He's I think he's dead. He was a very violent so, so. head of a uh, of a motorcycle gang called the Rat Pack here in New York City and Westchester. He was also a convicted, serious convicted child molester. I mean, I'm not going to get into what this guy did. If you're interested, Mike Codella talks about it in the interview that he gave with me. But it's extremely disturbing, and, I'm, and I don't want to bring it up to, to this audience here. Okay? So now, he's in jail. He wants to get out of jail, right? Um, so he offers up information on stuff that he knows. It just so happens that one of the items that he knows about was the murder of Eton Pate. So we're going to get that in here. John Lentini, Tiny Lentini. So let's go back to page three of that, of that letter, please, Eric. Tiny Lentini, currently in Greenhaven Correctional Facility, has identified photographs, has identified photographs of Gajusek and has given a statement that Gajusek was a member of the Westchester cult and that his motorcycle club, the Rat Pack, dealt with regarding homicides, stolen property, and occult rituals. Please just go to page four. Lentini states that he did not know the name Daniel Colton Gajusek. He knew him as Moloch and as Rado, two cult names, and as a principal member of the Westchester adult group. The members of the Rat Pack called him the Professor. Now, I had a question for Mike Codella when I when I read this originally on our show a couple weeks ago on Subscribestar. Um, I said to him, "Well, this doesn't sound believable to me, Mike, because why would a, a, a an esteemed Nobel Prize winning um, <clears throat> doctor be anywhere near a guy like John Lentini of Rat Pack, a, a motorcycle gang member?" And Mike Codella essentially said, "Hey, Schmendrick." If you're a child molester, you go where the children are. You go where the people are who, who get, can get you the kids. Right. If you're a drug a drug user, you go to your drug dealer. And they might – so that like <laughs> – I was like, yeah, of course that makes sense. And you sense. combine it and probably get the drugs to control the kids. Exactly. So the members of the Rat Pack called him the professor. One such homicide – so the rest is redacted – but one such homicide that Gajusek was present for – was that of a young boy, Lentini, called Ethan. Now, I want to talk about this for a second, Eric, if, if I may. Mike Codella, Detective Mike Codella, who took the statement from J Tiny Lentini in 1996 in Greenhaven and who has been on my show several times talking about this interview. You can easily see it on his, on his YouTube channel. He was convinced that Lentini was telling the truth because Lentini screwed up the name. Mike, as a, as a very savvy detective, realized that uh, if, if Lentini had come to him with a tale so perfect, like, yeah, Eton Pates and this and that, and knew the name perfectly, like, it, it, it wouldn't have been as believable, in a sense, as, like, if he's kind of screwed it up a little bit, right? And Eton is kind of a name that sounds like Ethan and would be easy to screw up if you're not familiar with, like, you know, Israeli or Hebrew names. So, so Codella took that very seriously, and, and he, he lended a lot of credibility to Lentini's statement because of that. And so, so getting back to the, to the letter here, this would be Eton Pates, missing from Lower Manhattan in 1979. Currently, there is no concrete evidence other than the statements of Berkowitz and Lentini to testify to that fact. But if the evidence is correct, this case is involved in the sexual exploitation of minors, 
pornography, kidnapping, and homicide. I would request that your office uh, consider initiating grand jury proceedings, and I feel that granting immunity, so they basically said grant him immunity. Well, what did Gajusek do after getting this? Uh, well, he got the hell out of the United States. He moved to Norway, where he lived out the rest of his days unmolested, uh, to use a bad term. He, he Wait, lived, which, which tells you something, right? Because where did he win a Nobel Prize? Who gave uh, Sweden next door, right? Right, Norway, right, exactly. No, 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 um, no, 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 he went to Norway, I think Sweden, I don't know who gives the prize exactly, is it Sweden? I thought it was Sweden, anyway, now, now I'm, I'm throwing it off now, everybody in the chat make fun of me if I got it wrong, but I thought it was Sweden, <laughs> but I, I think it's very, very interesting to go to an area and they, they're okay with their prize going to this monster, I never saw anything about it being rescinded or anything else, None. yet, um, I don't know for sure, but I wonder if the Nobel Prizes have been rescinded from anybody else who, let's just say, you don't like their politics later or something like that or whatever committee. It's right. Very, very. And he was a Nobel Prize winner when this Eton Pates thing happened because he won the prize in 76 and Eton Pates was 1979. So this is a case. So Codella, Detective Codella, it was told even further by informants that the body of Eton Pates was up at a was up in a farm in upstate New York. Um, Detective Codella didn't give me any notion as to where that was. Um, maybe he's you know still somewhat closed mouthed about this, just in case we can still find people involved. But he actually went up there with a partner, and they um, spoke to the owner of the farm. The owner of the farm was very interested in what they had to say but absolutely refused to allow them on the property whatsoever to do any sort of ground penetrating radar anything and then that was that was the end of it it kind of died there um the nypd shut codella down which is very interesting because that's wisps of what happened in son of sam where the investigation was just shut down completely um and also, and very interestingly enough, that's wisps of another investigation which I'm looking into called Operation Together, which was a um, which was a task force in the early '70s uh, about um, the gay underground uh, and the mafia and the bars and child trafficking and pimping and the nexus between the mafia and the gay bars. There was this whole and, and all these murders that were happening to prominent gay people. Um, there was an op it was a it was an investigation called Operation Together, which was shut down unceremoniously by the NYPD once they got to because uh, that involved people from the UN and child homicide. When, when was that? That was the early seventies. So I'm working yeah, on. Thinking... How did a little boy in such a big city disappear? Well, as it turns out, it may have all played out in just a few city blocks. May 25th, 1979. It's a Friday, and six-year-old Aton Pates is upstairs in his family's third-floor apartment getting ready for school. He comes straight out this door, all decked out in a corduroy jacket, pants, and a kid's pilot hat. He can't wait to get to school. For the first time, Aton's mom and dad are allowing him to walk two blocks down the street this way to get to his school bus stop all by himself. It was the Friday before Memorial Day weekend, and this was going to be one of his last opportunities. And they finally relented and said he could go. It's just after 8 a.m. According to author Lisa Cohen, Aton's mom kisses him goodbye and watches him walk toward the bus stop. Everything seems fine, so his mother runs back upstairs to take care of her two-year-old son. Oh, 
the narrative goes just like you heard in that episode and at the beginning of this podcast. Mom gets talked into letting Ethan walk to school alone this day for the first time. It's a red letter day. I still have to look what that is. I don't even know what that means. And, and I don't know why they would throw that out in a report. But dad's sleeping. She supposedly has a daycare. A bunch of kids are about to come over. His eight-year-old sister, for whatever reason, isn't going with him to school that day. I did read one uh, account that she went to a different school, but she was eight and he was six. So they should have went to the same school. And then I read another account that said she wasn't getting ready fast enough and he just wanted to go without her. So I don't know what to believe on that account. Um but then I came across other articles and news stories that I guess they forgot what they originally told people because the story changes. And I, again, I'm not here accusing anybody, but I know when I've had significant things happen in my life, I know exactly where I was and what I was doing and my story ain't changing. The only time your story changes is when you're lying. So let me read you a couple stories that come out uh, one in the beginning and one just, you know, in 2015, I believe, of the mama's account of Aton. And then I will play you a clip of the dad saying, oh, well, I think I was here. I think I was there. Like, how do you think you were shaving your face or sleeping? Like, did you forget what the narrative was? So my theory is that whatever happened to this kid, they were in on it. And they were doing it for the purpose of tracking. And I'm going to get there with the fingerprinting that they soon started after this. But they have taken it a step further with this movie, Sound of Freedom, with the Freemason Tim Billiard. And you can look that up on his own Instagram page. He's more than happy to show you he's a Freemason who is a high up in the Mormon church. And I've talked to you guys about that lots on this episode. I'm not bashing the religion. Most people don't understand that high up, especially in the Mormon church, Catholic church, not good stuff is going on. And the higher up you are, likely you are a Freemason, which Tim Balliard is happy to show you he is. And now he's doing the Sound of Freedom show. I think they want to do it so more people get scared so they can start tracking your children with chips because we know that's the end time prophecy. I mean, it's going to happen someday. People are going to be so scared of not being able to eat, buy, and sell food that they're going to chip themselves. And at the mark of the beast, it's called in the Bible. And so many people don't see that we're living in biblical times right now, that this stuff is truly happening. And they, if this is a plan in the making, and they started it with this Eton Paz case. And when I read you this newspaper article, I'm just going to read you some key clips from this key guy. Because some of these things are absolutely mind-blowing that they had put this in print. And again, I'll put the links to everything so you can read the full articles. You can, I, you know, so easy to take things out of content. I just put clips of this or clips of that. So that's why I leave you the full video so you can listen to the whole thing all by yourselves. Okay, so this article that I'm about to read you comes from The Observer. And the headline says, The story of Ethan Paz. Reporters remember the quest to cover and find Soho's missing boy. By Brian Thompson Gallagher on uh, April 25th, 2012 at 1217 p.m. The article starts with a picture of Ethan's mother holding his little brother with a bunch of reporters around her. Okay, so this article goes on to interview a bunch of different people. 
And the key person we're going to focus on is John Miller because he is a reporter and he works at the time, um, says John Miller, then a reporter at Channel 5 News, now a senior correspondent at CBS News. What I remember that day was walking up the couple flights of stairs to get to the Paz apartment. Okay, now here's another miss, something you'll notice. He says two flights of stairs. That's the second floor to get to their apartment. I believe that's where they set up all the media, the cops, and I believe the Pazes actually lived on the third floor because the dad will say that in an interview. So, like I said, if this thing's a setup, they don't want a bunch of news reporters and all this crap going in their apartment. So they have this apartment stage set up on floor two. The Pazes really live on floor three. And I will confirm that because they just sold their New York apartment for $3 million, I believe in 2019. So we'll see if they sold that on the third floor or the second floor. But here, according to John Miller, he goes up a couple flights of stairs to get the Paz apartment and walking in, seeing the pandemonium inside, the police had set up a, like a command post. There was a string of telephone wires to bring extra lines so that the Paz's line would be free in case there was a call from the kidnappers. They had 300 cops there and they were doing a grid search of the neighborhood in every backyard and every basement. So they're on it, right? How many people do you know that has reported a child missing and within hours, even days, have a whole command post set up at their house? Yeah, not many. So later in this article, Miller goes on to say, and this is Miller, I met Julie Paz that day. So this is the day it happened in 1979. I met Julie Paz that day. I said, tell me what happened. And she said, he walked to school and I stood out on the fire escape and I watched him walk all the way to the corner where the bus stop was. And that was the last I saw of him. I asked her, would you step outside on the balcony and point in that direction and show me how you watched? Because... I was thinking it's a television story. We're going to have to make it visual. So we had a cameraman shoot her on the balcony, kind of looking in the direction she was looking. So I took a screenshot of that picture. <laughs> I mean, so this is the day it happened. And this reporter's more than happy to tell you what she said, because that's the truth of how he remembers it. And lo and behold, it's she never walked downstairs with him to this reporter on the first day he talked to her. So stories changed after the first day. Now Miller goes on to say, they were available for an interview on the first day, the second day, and during the first week. Are they? Are they available for an interview on those days? And he answers and says, yeah, after that, they kind of withdrew on the idea that doing more interviews wasn't really moving the ball forward. They've they were then and remain today extraordinary self-possessed and dignified people. That's a weird word. Who who never got bitten by the media bug. To them, this was always a family tragedy and a missing child. Now, I want to back up and say that's not necessarily true because she was on Oprah and Donahue, Julie Paz. And you cannot find those anywhere except for in articles where it says that she was on these shows. So I tried to look it up. Cannot find anything everything of these this family has been wiped off the internet except for a couple things that you can only watch trailers on and then you have to subscribe and like give all your information to watch these clips of this family on um like 60 minutes even it's just bizarre um 
So then Miller goes on to say, the thing to do was stay on it, to stay connected to it, because if you didn't, you were likely to miss an important development as a reporter. Well, Mr. Miller, uh, if you're still alive today, you missed a huge development on this case as you reported it for the 30 some years you were on this case reporting it. The fact that her story changed and that you changed your story along with her. Kind of bizarre, Miss CBS. I don't get that. This is really telling what Mr. Miller says on this in this at article here. It says, Miller, you had this clear-eyed, blonde-haired boy with an impish grin who would mug for the camera in different ways, a father who had hundreds of high-quality photographs. It was something that was very organized for television and the newspapers because of the imagery. Are you freaking kidding me right now? And then he goes on to say, you knew there was something bad happening, but you also had a sense that it would have a logical ending. Like you guys set it all up. Okay, that's my little intro there. That there would be a word from the kidnappers, that there would be ransom, that there would be a body found, that there would be an ending in sight that weekend and the next weekend and week after that. Again, Miller goes on to say, it's been tough and frustrating case from the reporting standpoint. Because you're full of it, Mr. Miller. And also the personal attachment to it. Every porter who's worked hard on this story is wiped out, except for Mr. Miller. Again, I'm adding that in there. Especially if you've been on it for a long time. You expect it to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. The Ethan Paz case seems to just have a middle. Yeah, sure does. Like he just shows up on the newspapers all of a sudden and that's it for the next 50 years. Oh, but you know, you'll notice all the time, even at the beginning of this podcast when he was... He was six years old. And then there's a pause. Six. They love throwing their six sixes out there. I can catch all the clues now. And back then they did it like more openly than they do now. Now you have to be more on it. Um, but it, this this article goes on. I'll link it. It's, it's ridiculous. So then I went and looked up some Miller uh, stories, you know, Mr. Miller. So let's hear one of those just for kicks. The name and the face. Aton Pates was the first missing child to appear on a milk carton. He disappeared in New York City 33 years ago. Tonight, police are following a new lead. John Miller has covered this case since the day Aton disappeared, and he brings us up to date tonight. Today, for the first time in three decades, police and the FBI returned in force to the New York City block where Aton Pates vanished. New York Police Spokesman Paul Brown. We're putting greater emphasis on this location, looking forensically for any evidence of, uh, of human remains or clothing. Investigators intend to dig up the concrete floor in a basement that was once the workshop of Othniel Miller, a handyman who befriended the six-year-old boy. The concrete floor was laid just days after Aton vanished. Pates disappeared in May of 1979. He was last seen by his mom walking to a school bus stop by himself. The case tapped into the fears of every parent. It was one of the most highly publicized disappearances of a child. Author Lisa Cohen wrote a book on the case. I think this really was a turning point for American culture. I can't tell you how many times people have said to me, how could you let him walk to the bus stop by yourself? That was what people did back then. That was, that was absolutely a standard. And that was before Aton. And after Aton, everything changed. Images of Aton Pates were placed on milk cartons, and the case started the movement that led to the founding of the National Center for Missing Children. But for Stan and Julie Pates, there was never closure. The disappearance became a cold case 
For years, Jose Ramos, a convicted child molester from the neighborhood who had dated Eitan's babysitter, was considered the prime suspect. John Miller's joining us now. John, what led them to that basement? Well, this takes this case in an entirely different direction from the former prime suspect, um, Jose Ramos. And it's a couple of things, Scott. It's, there's a sealed affidavit filed in court. They have witness information in there. It concerns when that concrete floor went down right after the boy disappeared, why it went down. And another element is they brought in FBI cadaver dogs who did a search of that area. They've done some ground-penetrating sonar. The dogs alerted in the area, and they've seen some anomalies. So the collection of all these things gave him probable cause to bring to a judge for that search warrant. After 33 years, John. Y'all catch that. 33 on there? wondering why I keep saying 33, 66, 666. Those are all the numbers they use, guys. 33, 33rd degree masons, 66, the number of the beasts. They do it all, all together, all the time. Okay, so the next article I want to read and kind of end with a little bit. We've got a couple more things to cover before we end this, but is this New York Post article that has some details I have never heard on any interview, any story, any book from the parents, nothing except for apparently the mom testified this to court in court and the New York Post published it. So I'm going to read this to you and maybe you'll find it as interesting as I do. I find it very interesting. Okay, so part of me feels like some of this might be true. It says, Ethan Paz's mother breaks down in tears describing her son's disappearance by Rebecca Rosenberg and Bruce Golding, February 2nd, 2015 at 1, guess what, 33 p.m. <laughs> Cute. And then I have a picture of old Julie Paz outside the court on Monday, and Julie Paz has been missing. The only article I could find about her, there's no Wikipedia, there's nothing on this woman. I can't even tell how old she, like when her date of birth was. I can find nothing on her except for a few clips, like I said. And then the one article um, says that she went disappeared in New York and no one's ever seen her. But the dad sold the house for three some million dollars and now she's gonzo. Again, shady stuff around this family, big time. So it says the mother of Ethan Paz shared her pain in a man with the Manhattan jury on Monday, detailing publicly the tragic disappearance of her six year old son 35 years ago as he walked alone to school for the first time. During a gripping and often emotional appearance on the witness stand, Julie Paz revealed that she flew into a panic with Ethan watered off their block just hours before he would forever vanish. Okay, just hours before he would listen to this, you guys. This is. May 24th, the day before. It says, Paz said she left Ethan playing outside their Soho loft with a downstairs neighbor on the evening of May 24th, 1979, while she briefly ducked inside. When I went back onto the fire escape to see how they were doing, Ethan was gone and he was nowhere in sight, she said. Paz, now 72, said she raced downstairs and started searching for her son. I ran around the corner, heading north, my heart pounding. He was nowhere in sight. I tried going around the block on the other direction. Still no Ethan. I was getting pretty panicky at this point in time, she said. Ultimately, he came back around the corner from the west, and I, of course, being a typical calm mother, I screamed and yelled at him and chastised him severely for almost giving me a heart attack. 
Paz said Ethan was quite upset, and that's in quotes, by the scolding, which she called certainly an overkill. Hmm. Interesting words. Especially for a child like Ethan, who never needed discipline because he was so sensitive and eager to please. Paz choked up and had to wipe away tears as she also told of being ostracized when she ventured out with her other son and daughter after Ethan's disappearance. It's weird that that's the only time she ever cried. I was on the street with them going around trying to play like we used to do. And the group of women came up to me and said, if I could laugh so soon after my son's death, obviously I had been responsible for the murder. This happened more than once. She said, Paz testimony Monday in the Manhattan Supreme Court trial of former grocery clerk Pedro Hernandez put her face to face with the man who confessed to killing her son after he was, this is me on the side, after he was locked in a room for six hours. We already went over this at the beginning of it. Before, no recording, nothing. God knows what they did to this poor mentally challenged man to make him do a fake confession. And we all know those are real. And she made him, made a concentrated effort to avoid looking at him. Yeah, she should because she knows that it's a lie. How could you do that to somebody? She bravely gave jurors a detailed description of the fateful moment when Ethan left home for the last time. And that was just heartbreaking to hear 35 years later. Ethan said she had been insisting he was big enough to go off by himself like his big sister and was clutching a dollar he earned doing some very easy non-work for a local carpenter. Again, another inconsistency here because they said they gave him one. And now she's saying he earned it and he was clutching it. When he was ready, I walked him down the stairs onto the sidewalk, she described in court. <laughs> she described of May 25th, 1979. So she said this under oath. So she lied under oath. And I can prove it. And I'm not even a freaking attorney. It was kind of damp and misty morning. I told him to go straight to the bodega to get his drink quickly so he didn't miss the bus. It was about 10 minutes to 8 when we were down at the sidewalk. So seven minutes before the uh, bus was supposed to get there. I remember I reminded him to come home from school because we were going for the weekend to Altman family away with, sorry guys, we're going away for the weekend with the Altman family, she recalled. He was wearing a blue corduroy jacket, an airline's pilot cap, a bag, the bag, the sneakers, and I don't remember which. What? The bag, the sneakers, I don't remember which. Because you're lying. That was the last time I saw him. I watched him walk one block heading west, approaching Wu Street. I turned around, went back upstairs, and it was the last time I ever saw him, she added. Paz described her blonde, blue-eyed boy as a child who was totally outgoing, trusting of everyone, total non-judgment about people. But at the same time, he was very fearful of being lost or left alone by himself, she said. So why would he go with a stranger when he's one block from his bus stop and there's all these people out in the broad daylight because you guys are full of crap? can't even believe this. Ugh, drives me nuts. Paz also described um, the bodega where Hernandez worked as a safe haven for kids in now trendy neighborhood, which at the time was still home to light industrial factories and didn't even have streetlights, which didn't matter because it was still daylight. It was the middle of the day. Hernandez was bust, busted in 2012 after giving a videotape confession to cops who got a... who got a tip he had allegedly told friends and relatives about abducting a kid in new york city the defense maintains the confession was false and coerced out of hernandez who has a history of mental illness and iq that borders retardation and this is in 2015 
All right, so now I'm going to play you the clip. If I haven't proven to you all the inconsistencies with these parents, even let's find out what floor they sold this apartment. If it's the second floor or third floor, I'll be right back. Yeah, so it was the third floor, uh, according to everything I'm finding. So from my understanding, they had the second and third floor going on during this 1979 case. Second floor had all the police officers and all that stuff, that big old Hollywood charade setup. And the third floor is where they actually lived and sold their apartment in 2019 for $3.75 million. And according to this Daily Mail, dated September 14, 2019, they state that the last time she saw her son was standing on the balcony of this loft. So again, stories don't match up. It's ridiculous. You'd think they'd get their story straight. But again, if you're pulling a fast lie in 1979, not expecting the internet, and then all of a sudden there's the internet, you can research all these things, you're not going to expect people to catch you in all your lies. And then the whole fact that Dexter and Michael Hall, the whole Dexter show, Michael Hall thing, is that really this kid? Ethan, I mean, I don't know. And maybe that's why the parents were never sad. And maybe that's why they pulled all the interviews because they, it's obvious they weren't sad from the little ones I could find. Who would say when your kid's missing, maybe somebody wanted him more than we did or what, liked his beautiful blue eye. Nobody. You'd be bawling your eyes out, begging whoever took your kid to give your kid back. Not maybe somebody else wanted him more than us. No. You and you know why they did that to put this in America's head that there's perverts out there that want your kid more than you and they're going to come steal them, which is now true. But they forgot about the 800,000 that are undocumented and everything else. So you got to ask yourself in 1982 when they started us fingerprinting our children in public schools and at parks and at carnivals, why? Why do they want your child's fingerprints when really the kids that go missing are undocumented? Because they want to track your children. It's so obvious now. Like, as soon as I started doing this case, it was like ding, 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 ding. They did this case to f put the fear because fear controls people. Once you can control people, then you can get people to willingly, voluntarily give up your child's fingerprints in 1982. <laughs> yeah, I figured it out. And guess where it was? New Jersey. That's where they started all of this. So let's end this with... Eton Paz's dad claiming he might have been shaving, he thinks, when his son disappeared, if that's not the ice cream on the cake. And then we're going to pray that God reveals all things, just like he says he will in the Bible. Hello, I'm Elizabeth Vargas, and welcome to 2020 in Touch. He was just six years old, walking to school for the first time on his own. That was 30 years ago this week, the last time little Aton Pates was seen alive. Jay Shadler reports. It was the last school day before a long Memorial Day weekend. I think that I was probably in the bathroom shaving when Aton uh, went out the door. Did your wife take Aton down the elevator? No. Since we're only on the third floor, we used the stairs. Down the stairs and out onto Prince Street. It was a red-letter day for first-grader Aton. For months, he'd been pestering his parents to walk alone to the school bus stop just two blocks away. Today, they finally agreed, and away he went. In the early days, you and your wife took a lot of criticism about letting Aton go by himself that day. That must have been tough. Well, we did, but at some point in every parent's life, they 
send their children to school alone. Did we do it too early? Obviously we did. It was very familiar territory. This was a very safe neighborhood. When you let them out of your sight, when they're 21. Okay, so I just looked up Red Letter Day because I was like, oh yeah, I forgot. What's that mean? And that is a day that is pleasantly noteworthy or memorable. The end of a financial year used to be a red letter day for investors. Very interesting that he would throw that comment in there in this news story, I think. So world, there's the story of E. Tan Paz. Was he a child that randomly went missing when his mom was staring at him not even a block away? Or was this a show for the world to stage so we could live in fear the rest of our lives? The beautiful thing about life is you get to decide. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the beautiful life you give us. Uh, you have told us in your word that all things will be revealed. And I pray, Lord, that each and every day you do that. From this case, from Etan Paz to Adam Walsh to Megan Walsh, who's still fighting for her children trying after she exposed her dad for the fraud he committed. For all the money they have laundered from these innocent people wanting to help their children, wanting to save children, wanting to protect children, may they all be reimbursed for the money they gave that might have been used to traffic children. Let us wake up to what they're really doing in this agenda that they have. Keep our children safe and protected from these, these horrid, evil, vile people that Trump has always told us are so, so sick. Put our rightful president back in office and do it this year in 2023 because we are asking and what we ask in your name when two or more are together you will listen and you will do it because you have told us that you are wonderful you are mighty and you are the creator of all things you know the beginning from the end thank you jesus in jesus name i always pray amen and i just got to give you a little of this real quick you deserve the Nobel Prize, everyone thinks so but i would never say it. <laughs> you know what i want to do i want to get it finished. The prize I want is victory for the world, not for even here. I want victory for the world because that's what we're talking about. So that's the only prize I want. Can something still stop? They do that and they should do it for themselves.